button person. That you, your snooze button person, trying to keep the dream alive for a little longer, you know, just, just trying to hang in there with it. This week I was trying to help somebody find a new alarm clock. And in my looking for alarm clocks, I was stunned with all the alarm clocks that are out there. It's, it's really pretty amazing. Did you know there's an alarm clock that is like a siren on the top of a police car, like a big blue light? Can you imagine waking up in one of those early morning nightmares and the room is a blue light? Man, that's, that'd be a little spooky. Now, some of you, you're used to a blue light, and, you know, that's okay. That's, that's fine. We, we know you've grown accustomed to it. There's another one that launches a little space rocket. So like when the alarm goes off, it shoots this space rocket. I guess you're supposed to aim it at your face, you know, so the rocket hits you and, you know, wakes you up, you know. There's another one that's a floor mat. Yeah, you, you have to get out of bed and put your feet on the mat before the alarm will cut off. You know, that, that's a motivator. But my favorite that I saw, beyond compare, is called the snooze and lose, okay? The snooze and lose is set up with a system that through Wi-Fi, it is connected to your bank account. And every time you hit the snooze button, it makes a donation to an organization that you hate. (laughs) That is the most fantastic thing. Oh my goodness, I laughed my head off. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Well, whether you are somebody that on the first ring of the alarm, boy, you're, you're out of the bed, or whether you hit that snooze button about as many times as the count of your steps every day, no matter who you are and how you wake up in the morning, we all wake up something with something immediately on our minds, right? I mean, there's something on our minds when we wake up, something that we're dealing with. And if there's not something immediately on your mind when you wake up, Usually, according to statistics, you'll have something on your mind in a very short amount of time once you grab your smartphone. Yeah, I was reading a report this week that said that of the 80% 80 of the people who own smartphones look at their smartphone within the first 15 minutes of getting up, okay? I mean, truthfully, I think that statistic is probably the first 15 seconds of getting up. But, But, you know, looking at the phone first thing. Now, the report noted that checking your phone that quickly after you wake up can do this. It can distract your mind, it can create significant amounts of stress, and it will set the tone for the rest of your day. That, that stress and that distraction will set the tone for the rest of your day. It also noted that looking at your phone right when you wake up can hijack your time, it can hijack your attention, and it can make you less productive during the day. Now, I mean, I'm just thinking on the surface. Having your heart and mind and time hijacked first thing in the morning doesn't sound like the way that you should want to wake up. So, is there another option? Is there a, a different way to wake up? Is there a way to, to wake up where you're not getting hijacked as soon as you get up? Is there a way for you to wake up where you're doing at least this one thing that doesn't just set the tone for the day, but really begins to set the tone for your entire life, day after day after day? Is there a way to wake up like that? Well, there is. And what is it? Well, let's see if we can find out together. Listen to Lamentations 3, beginning with verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering. The wormwood and bitterness, surely my soul remembers. 
and is bowed down within me. Well, that sounds better than getting hijacked, right? Nothing like a good morning fresh cup of affliction with a splash of wormwood cream and three shots of bitterness. That's how we want to wake up, right? These are the words of Jeremiah, prophet who lived about 600 years before Jesus was born. Rather than completely forget the terrible things in his life, he remembers them. I mean, that doesn't exactly sound like how we want to wake up, right? I want to wake up remembering all the terrible things that have happened in my life, all the affliction, all of the suffering. But yet that's how he woke up. And, and listen to how it unfolds. Listen to, to how he, he unpacks this. Again, we're down in verse 19. If you go back up to verse 1 and, and walk through 1 through 15, these are some of the ways that Jeremiah describes his life, okay? Like this. He was driven into darkness, darkness like the grave. His flesh and his skin had wasted away. His bones had been broken. He had been in prison with heavy chains. His prayers had been cut off. His prayers were not answered. He says he's been torn apart. He's been struck with arrows. He's been publicly mocked. And get this, he's had his teeth busted in with rocks. And you thought you had a bad week. I mean, goodness gracious, listen. To that description. Now most of that is poetic language, it's not specific direct things that happen, but, but here's the kicker of all of it. Through all of that description, Jeremiah blames God. He puts it on God. He says that, that God is the one who created and purposed and allowed all of those things to happen to him. Do you ever feel that way? You ever feel like everything's going wrong in life, that everything's falling apart? And you start thinking, where's God? Well, why, why isn't God intervening? Why isn't God changing things? And if we're honest, really what goes through our mind is, is something along this, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? Listen to what Jeremiah said after he says he got his teeth bashed in. Chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Man, rejected from peace, emotionally separated from the whole concept of being happy. He doesn't have enough strength to pick up that cup of bitterness. And then the worst part is he is utterly and totally and completely hopeless. Have you ever felt that way in life? Have you felt that way this week? This sense of of hopelessness. This sense of of having nothing. See, it's interesting because Jeremiah is is not kind of doing the power of positive thinking here, right? I mean, he's, he's remembering his afflictions. He's not ignoring them. He's not acting like they didn't happen. He's not just trying to think of sugar and spice and all things nice. No, he's remembering his affliction. He remembers them, but he's not worshiping them. There's a difference, right? He's remembering, but he's not worshiping. I think most of us can look at times in life and and we can see that we've we've skirted on the edge of that. Because see, if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll take that hard thing that happened to us We'll take that difficult thing, that 
that stress, that anger, that terrible moment, that tragedy even. And, and what we'll do is we'll take it and it will become an idol in our lives. We'll actually begin to worship our affliction. We'll rearrange our thoughts and our attitudes around our suffering and our affliction. Sometimes we will reschedule our lives around our suffering and our affliction. Not in a good way. You know, not like, you know, raising money for medical research or, or you know, trying to, to fight against social or, or legal injustice. No, what we do is we take our marriage and we take our family and we take our friends and our jobs and our hobbies. We take everything in life and we unnecessarily force it into an unnecessary, unending pity party. Now, Jeremiah is not against pity. He's not against sympathy. This, this guy needed some. He needed some pity. He needed some sympathy. But he wasn't going to worship it. He wasn't going to worship his affliction. He was going to remember his cup of bitterness. He was going to remember it. But then he was going to pour something else in the cup. And what was that? Look what he says in verse 21. This I recall to my mind. He remembers and then he recalls. I'd say for, I don't know, about the last 30 years, I remind myself at least weekly, sometimes daily, and, and others about my, my thoughts on the difference between reacting and responding. My kids hopefully have heard this more than they wanted to hear it. Reacting is when something happens and you just do something. Anything. You, you just do something. That's, that's reacting. Responding is doing something with thinking. You, you have something that happens, but you respond with something that kind of matches the moment and matches the situation. Now, someone might say, well, you know, sometimes in life you just don't have time to respond. You know, there's just too much happening. You don't have time to respond. Okay, I will graciously disagree. And here's why. Thinking is not something you have to stop and do. Thinking is something that you can be doing already. The psalmist put it this way, Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word I have treasured, King James says, I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against Look, none of us are perfect, but, but as believers, one reason that we should read and study the Bible is to help us do life. If we aren't reading and studying and, and memorizing and praying through and marinating over the truth of God that he put in his book, then we will post and repost and repeat and regurgitate almost anything functioning like unregenerate reactors instead of posting and reposting and repeating and rejoicing like redeemed responders. So just casual look at our lives this week. Just, just kind of think back over the last seven days. Your functionality, has it looked more like an unregenerate reactor or more like a redeemed responder? Are you just, just reacting to things, just quick thoughts about anything or, or is the truth of God's word marinating in your mind and heart to such a degree that when things happen, you're actually able to respond instead of just react. And Jeremiah, I think in a similar way, with the R's at least, is, is calling us to think about something along those same lines. He is saying that we definitely need to be wise rememberers 
but we really, really need to be diligent recallers. We need to remember, but we really need to recall. So what's the difference? What's the difference in those two R's? Well, I'm overly simple, so let's just put it this way. We could say this. We remember things that have happened, and we recall things that have been declared. We remember things that have happened. We recall things that have been declared. So let's just kind of think through that. So I remember having a a Neptune burger at Neptune Oysters in Boston. Okay, I remember that happening. And I recall declaring that it was the greatest hamburger I have ever had. Okay, remembering and recalling. A grandson might remember that his grandpappy was a super nice guy who also was an annoying penny pincher. But he will recall that his grandpappy left all of his money to his grandson. It's the picture of remembering things and recalling things. Remembering may take us to moments that could be good or bad, but recalling is taking us to a declaration that is ironclad, something that cannot change. So Jeremiah, he's remembered his cup of suffering. He's remembering his cup of bitterness, his suffering, his affliction. But then he's recalling a truth that cannot change. And what does that truth do to him? Look at the next part of verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. So he's remembering his affliction, and that's setting him up to recall a declaration, and recalling that declaration is setting him up for hope. It's setting him up for hope. Now what kind of hope are we talking about? Because we know how to hope for things, right? I mean, we, you know, we hope our team will win. We hope our candidate will win. We hope our favorite TV show will not get canceled. We hope our spouse's favorite TV show would get canceled. You know, I mean, we, we have these moments, things that we, we hope for. We hope that the sermons will, will get shorter, you know, and some hope that the sermons will get longer, you know, all 2.7% of y'all, you know. It, it's, we, we hope for things, you know. As one philosopher said, wherever you go, I hope there's pancakes. I mean, we know about hope. But some of you this morning, you have some different hopes. You're hoping that your spouse will quit being so mean. You're hoping that your spouse will quit being so indifferent. You're hoping that your kids will quit being so foolish. You're hoping that your parents will quit being so demanding. You're hoping that your grandparents will quit being so negative. You're hoping that the politicians will find some more wisdom. You're hoping that the researchers will find some more cures. You're hoping that the doctors will find some more answers. See, we we know what it means to hope. And there's times in life when when things are so dark and we feel like our prayers are being cut off and we, we feel like our teeth are getting bashed in. And in those moments, we need something more than pancakes. You need an iron declaration of hope. Ironclad. Can't be changed. It's there. See, that's, that's what Jeremiah's doing. Jeremiah, he's, he's remembering his suffering, and then he's recalling this ironclad declaration of hope, and that hope changes how he's thinking. It's, it's changing how he's acting. It's changing how he's thinking because he realizes that hope cannot be taken away, ever. 
So what is this hope that cannot be erased? What he says in verse 22. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. That's That's his hope. His hope is in the reality that the love of God cannot cease. Not not just the love, but notice it's plural. Loving kindnesses. There are so many expressions of God's love, and they never cease. You know, we talk about loving forever, right? We even text about loving forever. You know, we might text BFF, best friends, forever. We might text F-I-M-H, forever in my heart. We might text BFVR, bacon forever. You know, we we have ways to talk about forever. We we understand the the concept. The old country song says what? I'm going to love you forever and ever. Amen. But here's the reality. We we can't actually truly do that. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. The way to love anything is to realize that it might be lost. See, we we hear the word love and we immediately think about how we love other people and how other people love us. And that's good. But as beautiful and grand and noble and, and needed as our love should be and must be for others, our love has limits. Practically speaking, our love can't work past death. But that doesn't mean that we won't have memories of love. It just means that the practical interaction of love is gone. So we're, we're limited. If I use my burger in the thing, see, I can recall my declaration that the Neptune burger is the greatest burger I've ever had. But if I never go back to Boston and I never go back to Neptune Oyster and I never have that hamburger again, then my love is going to be limited for that hamburger. In other words, there's no reason for me to put my ultimate hope in my declaration of love for that burger. And you know, it, it may work against our, our norms. It may rattle our feathers of sentimentality and nostalgia and emotions. But it's not just true for burgers, it's true for people. You should never take a declaration of love from a spouse or a family member or a friend or from anybody else and build your entire, your entire hope on it. You shouldn't put your ultimate hope in anyone's declaration of love. Why? Because their love is limited. As, as good as it may be, their love can't actually be forever. Paul said it this way to the folks at Rome, Romans 8, verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In a number of different ways, we will be separated from the love of people, but we cannot be separated from the love of God. It is impossible. And so Jeremiah, he's recalling the declaration of God's love. And that declaration is giving him hope. It's giving him hope that will not waver, it will not disappear, it will not fade, it cannot be erased. So what is this declaration of love? Well, the language that Jeremiah uses really helps us. Because in saying the the loving kindnesses of the Lord never cease... In saying that, he's kind of asking indirectly a question in the middle of that. 
So what's the question? Well, think of it again, just thinking through what he said. It's as if Jeremiah's sitting there going, you know what, I've, I've been in darkness. I mean, the kind of darkness of the grave. He says, you know what, my flesh and my skin have wasted away. My, my bones have been broken. He says, you know, I've been in prison with heavy chains. My prayers have been cut off. I've been torn apart. I've been struck with arrows. He says, I've been mocked over and over again in public in front of people, and my teeth have been bashed in with rocks. And then the question is this, why hasn't God killed me? Why am I not dead? But this, this is terrible stuff. Why am I not dead? Why have I not been consumed by this? And then Jeremiah answers his question. He's like, oh, yeah, I, I forgot. I can't be separated from the love of God. God's love, it never ends, it never quits, it never fails. Even if I die, I can't be separated from God's love. So actually, God's love and only God's love will last forever. And His love is my love. I have that. That's why I'm not consumed. Even and especially death cannot kill the love of God. Jeremiah knows that no matter what happens to him, he can't be consumed. How does he know that? How does he know that he, that he can't be consumed? Well, it's because of this declaration that he's recalling. And what declaration is that? Well, listen, we, we have a, a host of declarations that God has given us that we can lean on. Jeremiah had a lot of personal declarations from the Lord that he could lean on. But, but I want to infer a little bit that he was leaning back on kind of the first declaration of love, or at least one of the first declarations of love, all the way back at the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is what God said to the serpent, the enemy. And I will put enmity between you and the woman... And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So the, the enemy's arm of harm was only going to be able to reach up as far as the heel. He'd just be able to, to strike the heel. And he was going to be able to strike the heel of the seed of the woman. Well, who is the seed of the woman here? Jump to the New Testament, Galatians chapter 4. Paul writes this. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, so that he might redeem. The seed of the woman is Jesus. And, and how did Jesus make a way to rescue and redeem people like me and, and people like you? How is the redemption story found all the way back in the beginning? Well, the way that Jesus rescues and redeems is through the cross. See, the very nature of the story of the cross is where our greatest hope is. See, the bruise on his heel only lasted three days. And then he was raised from the grave. And so the power and the authority of Jesus being raised from the grave isn't even the end of the story. Because then, as Genesis tells us, that resurrection bruised the head of the enemy. In other words, it was a fatal bruise. And that fatal bruise matters. Why? What does that supernatural 
intergalactic, eternal truth have to do with you today? Well, if things are not right between you and God, if, if, if your heart would honestly say, yeah, I mean, I've been in out of church some, went there, my grandparents took me when I was a kid, and maybe I prayed a sinner's prayer, I think I got baptized, I don't know. But your heart would say, yeah, you're, you're not following Jesus. If things aren't right with you and God, if, if you're not a believer, then that means the only thing that is in the account of your soul is the curse of sin. That's, that's all that's there. But, but see, the cross and the empty tomb, the, the resurrection of Jesus, it means that the account of Jesus is full of perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. That means that if you t- were to repent of your sin, to, to turn to God, to say, God, yes, I'm rebelling against your ways. God, I'm, I'm denying your existence, or at the very least, not involving your existence in my way of thinking. I don't care about my sin. I don't care about what I do wrong. If you repent of that, repent of your rebellion toward God, it means a transfer happens. The accounts change. To repent and turn to Jesus means that the curse of sin is removed from your account and the righteousness of Christ is deposited into your account. So you can't do anything to earn that credit to your account. You can't make that deposit to your account. It only comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the only way it happens. Christ redeems us from the curse. See, the cross was enough and the cross is enough because Jesus actually truly paid it all. All of it. See, what Jeremiah is doing is he's looking at his affliction. He's looking at his suffering. He's looking at the, at the bitter things that he's endured. He's looking at those hardships, those troubles, those trials, those tragedies, all of those things. And he's saying, those things are real. I, I see those. I, I know those. But, but I'm going to remember them. And then I'm going to recall the declaration of the kindness of God. And he's remembering that by grace, through faith, that his story has changed. And he can't be consumed. Death cannot actually overtake him because God has rescued and redeemed. And that truth, that story from before the foundations of the world that is told to us in Genesis and played out in the New Testament, that story, that gospel truth becomes his greatest hope and our greatest hope, a hope that cannot be taken away. So what does that look like in real life? Marshall and Susan Shelley were expecting their second child. And a few days before Thanksgiving, November 22nd, 1991, Susan gave birth to their son at 8.20 p.m. At 8.22, he died. The nurse who was holding the, the body of their lifeless boy gently turned to Marshall and Susan and said, is there a name? Do you, do you have a name for the baby? And, and almost with no hesitation, Susan responded, his name's Toby. 
which is short for Tobiah. And Tobiah means God is good. You know what happened in that moment with Susan? She wasn't reacting. Her life had been a pattern of remembering and recalling, and she was responding. And her response was, in this awful, terrible moment, I still know God is good. A few years later, Marshall was speaking to group of alumni at Wheaton College, he was telling Toby's story, and, and when he finished, the last thing he said was this. He said, life is hard, and God is good. Life is hard, and God is good. That's what Jeremiah is saying. He, his afflictions were, were real. They were hard. His, his difficulties, his suffering... His bitterness, it was real. It was hard. His troubles, his tragedies were real. They, they were hard. But they did not consume him because he knew that the love of God was good and it was real. It was real and it was good and it was never ending. Do you believe that? I mean, I mean, do you do you really believe that God's love is good and real, or or is it that more of a magnet on the refrigerator? Is it true for your heart that God is good? Is that true? Let me ask you this way: Have you been redeemed? Have you been rescued? Has the curse of sin been removed? If so, then you have every reason to hope in the goodness of God. You have every reason to hope in the loving kindness of God. I cannot force you to believe these things, but I think it's good for us to think through it. Because see, we can hear that story and we can say, man, Marshall and Susan, boy, and I, I really admire and respect them. But the question for our hearts is, would we say the same thing? Is our hope in the gospel such that that story could be written by us? And there's a little more to that story. It's, it's beautiful. I'll, again, I'll put a link to that uh, article uh, at the end of my sermon notes on the website. You can find it there. This is true. I can't make you believe it. I wish I could. But I can graciously and boldly proclaim it. Life is hard. And God is good. How do we know that's true? We can boil it down to one fact. Jesus paid it all. 